This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. You know, I, I, as I grew older and became more interested in the mind of the intellect that books cultivates, um, I didn't see a lot of space for that in the church. And I really, I, I, for a long time, I didn't see how the two went together. And it really wasn't until I was completing my PhD that I, you know, through a number of circumstances figured out, wow, the, the love that I have for words comes from the creator of the word. Welcome back to episode 86 of the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I sit down with Karen Swallow Pryor to discuss the impact great literature can have on our journey with Jesus, particularly as it relates to cultivating a virtuous life and reading and understanding scripture. I was thrilled to interview Karen because learning to enjoy reading has been a lifelong process for me, one that continues today. It has been something I have intentionally worked on as an individual and as a parent. Dr. Pryor, in very simple terms, teaches college and grad school students how to read great books well. Since I can't take one of her classes, I ask if she would give us a crash course. And if the quote at the beginning didn't give you some indication, let me tell you, our conversation does not disappoint. If you enjoy it, or if you've enjoyed any of the previous episodes, will you take a moment to give Grace Enough Podcast a five-star rating and review? If listening on Apple Podcasts, you simply scroll to the bottom and click the blue or purple Write a Review button. Here is a review from Awesomeness91234. They write, I always enjoy listening to Amber's podcast as her guests often expand my understanding and insight into different people's experiences. I often finish feeling both encouraged and challenged in my faith. I love that Amber lets the stories of her guests be the highlight and main focus rather than her. Friends, that is the mission behind my podcast, and so it is a delight to read reviews from listeners. So whatever app you're listening on, just scroll to the bottom and tap on that write a review. Without further ado, let's get to episode 86 with Karen Swallow Pryor on Reading Well. Good afternoon. Today we have Karen Swallow Pryor with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to connect with you, but I do want you to just introduce yourself to our listeners and tell everybody a little bit about what you do. Well, I am an English professor. I have been one for over 20 years. I just left uh, 21 years at Liberty University and am starting a new teaching position at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I guess your home territory. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'll be teaching English at the college there as well as uh, some graduate courses in cultural engagement and that sort of thing. So uh, it's a big change, a big transition, but very exciting. 
still live in, in central Virginia. Uh, and my husband is a public school teacher. We have a couple of dogs and chickens and we really enjoy, um, we, this part of the country is just, we call it God's country. It's beautiful here. Yes. Well, see, I could have a whole conversation with you about chickens because my husband is now ready to get chickens, but we're also getting a dog. And so I'm like, if we get a dog and chickens at the same time, I think we need to space this out a little bit, honey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have our chickens are all in a, you know, they have a big run that's completely fenced in, not just because of the dogs, but because of the bobcats and the hawks and everything else. So, yeah. Well, and that's the thing. We saw a hawk in our yard the other day. And that's when my husband was saying like, yes, I mean, the chickens have to stay in here. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can handle one of my chickens being eaten. (laughs) (laughs) It's not fun. (laughs) Oh, anyways, that's a side note, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, what a pleasant, what a pleasant turn this conversation has already taken. (laughs) Nature. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Nature's good for us, though. Um, Well, in your newest book on reading well, you write, just as water over a long period of time reshapes the land through which it runs, so too we are formed by the habit of reading good books well. And so in light of that quote, share a little of your backstory with us. Tell us how you came to know Jesus and maybe a couple of books that you remember really having shaped your faith. Sure. Um, I mean, for me, love of books and love of Jesus are so intertwined, I can hardly disconnect them. Uh, You know, one of my earliest sort of dramatic memories in my childhood is when my family moved when I was five years old uh, in the year of kindergarten. And I remember, um, you know, that's the time I was learning to read. And and it's the time my family made a big transition. And I remember praying to Jesus to help me in my new home in school. He was already my savior. um, But I remember praying to him in my bedroom for that help. And I also remember in that bedroom right around that same time, learning to read for myself, reading out loud and following my finger along the words um, in a Dr. Seuss book or something like that. Mm -hmm. I went to church and Sunday school as a child. I played library as a child. These things are all kind of connected for me of, of sharing Jesus and Sunday school and church with my friends generally, I was the only Christian among my friends and also sharing my love of books among my friends. Um, But eventually, I, you know, I, I, as I grew older and became more interested in the mind of the intellect that books cultivates, um, I didn't see a lot of space for that in the church. And I really, I, I, for a long time, I didn't see how the two went together. Um, And it really wasn't until I was completing my PhD that I, you know, through a number of circumstances figured out, wow, the the love that I have for words comes from the creator of the word. Mm. Um, And so when I made that connection, everything in my life changed and I just fell in love with literature in a new way and with teaching literature to Christian students so that they could understand that connection as well. I absolutely love that because even just this week, we were doing orientation for my kids' school and they go to a classical model school. And so my third grader is studying Greek and Roman history this year. And a parent, you know, had asked, how do you point out that this is, you know, not the God we serve? And it just was this interesting conversation. And I actually said something that I had heard, 
you know, you say and talk about about how it cult it can cultivate virtue in us as we look at how do these people live their lives. Um, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit because the subtitle of your book is Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. What is the good life, first of all, and how does reading great books really help us to discover it? Well, the good life and what is the good life has been a question that has obsessed philosophers from ancient times, including those Greek philosophers that, you know, that are taught in uh, wonderful classical schools. Um, so Aristotle was one of the most famous ones who kind of Ask the question, what constitutes a good life? In fact, in our constitution or in our Declaration of Independence in, in America, the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, is actually one of the translations of the Greek word that refers to the good life. So even in our American, you know, foundation is this idea of finding the good life. Happiness meant, you know, I mean, basically um, from Aristotle on, it was understood that you really, the happiest, best life that one could have was being virtuous, <laughs> um, excelling at the very things that make us human. Uh, and there are ways of understanding that in a, you know, in a pagan um, philosophical way. And there are ways of understanding that as a Christian believer. And there's a great deal of overlap. They aren't the same, but there is a great deal of overlap because even the pagan Greeks and Romans understood that there's something different about human beings, um, that we have a different nature and design. And it is by fulfilling that nature and design that we have the best life. Yeah. Well, and, and we all ultimately know this is good, this is bad. I mean, we may not do what is good, mm -hmm. but in a different conversation that I've had about the topic of comparison. I'm like, you know, we learn how to compare and contrast at a very young age mm -hmm. for a reason, because we want to be able to know what virtue is mm -hmm. versus what is something else. And so for many, the word virtue, it does not resonate with people in our current culture. But when we define it as behavior of really high moral character, I do hope that people's, you know, ears kind of perk up. And so talk to us a little bit about cultivating virtue in our current culture and some practical steps that we can take to make that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it kind of goes back to uh, your last question, uh, which I got a little sidetracked about, you know, about finding the good life in great books. I mean, so one way that we can actually, there are lots of ways to cultivate virtue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talk about how reading stories about people who either are virtuous or aren't virtuous can teach us uh, the right and wrong ways of living. But I think the key idea that we don't think about enough is that virtue does have to be cultivated. In other words, it, it, it's what the way that Aristotle defined virtue, and again, even though he wasn't a Christian, um, I think his, his, what he saw is all truth is God's truth. And I think this is true. What he meant by virtue is that when we practice a skill or a habit enough, it actually becomes second nature to us. And that's when we become virtuous, when we actually don't have to think about it. So if we say something has the virtue of this or someone has this virtue, when Aristotle said that, what he meant is this person is courageous or this person is wise or this person is kind by nature. Except 
what when, when we say by nature, we mean it's actually been practiced so long that it's become a, a habit that we don't think about anymore. Uh, most of us have to think about, oh, you know, I'm so irritated right now, but I'm going to be kind in this moment, right? That's, well, that's one I struggle with. <laughs> I'm easily irritated. <laughs> and so... listening knows that I struggle with that greatly. <laughs> so if, you know, if we have to stop and think about it and we choose to do the right thing, that's, that's great. But when we do it enough, we actually don't even have to think about it. And, and I, hopefully we've experienced that as well. I mean, I have too, when I've left the grocery store, I realize I don't know why the, you know, the, in a pandemic, I think grocery stores are the few places we're going and the places where it's easy to be irritated. But when we realize, <laughs> so wow, you know, I, instead of being irritated, I treated that person in front of me with kindness and I didn't even have to think about it. Like th- that's when we know that that virtue is beginning to take hold in us. It's nice to hear you talk about like the nature, because I think sometimes as Christians, we think the nature is just who we are in our most, in our most natural selves without Jesus. Right. And that is not what you're referring to. Right. The word nature has so many meanings. And yeah. so, and, and the whole idea of nature versus nurture and, <laughs> right, um, we have a personality, but we also know that the Bible tells us that right. when we are born again, we are new creatures. So we actually do have a new nature. It's there. It's fighting with the old man right. uh, in us, but we have that ability to cultivate that new nature. Um, but it's still, it's still something that we have to, we have to do intentionally. That's right. We have to practice it. And it actually takes our brain laying down new tracks of practicing a different virtue, because that's the word that we're using right now, to actually make you change your behavior. Right. So that that's, yeah, it's so important. And we, when we're talking about books, what do you think it is about reading um, a book with a character who is virtuous? I mean, you can pick one. Um, how do you think that inspires us to really live differently? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because reading a work of literature is a very different kind of reading than what most of us do when we're reading a Twitter thread. Not that I ever do that. Ha ha. Uh, (laughs) Not that I haven't done that since I've been on the, this podcast with you. (laughs) Um, It only takes two seconds. Right, right, right. But when we're reading that or a Facebook feed or even a newspaper article, we're skimming, we're getting information, we're processing intellectually. But when we pick up a work of literature, a story, and get lost in it, then we are immersed in this world and in this character, and we are seeing the world through that character's eyes, and we are making judgments and and decisions based on that world that we are temporarily immersed in. And that is the practice of virtue. We are actually practicing and we're not, we're not just thinking about something. We're actually seeing and feeling something. And that's what literary works allow us to do. And there's even scientific research that shows that the people after having read a literary work, again, literary means that it's the words are used not just to give information, but to actually recreate an experience for us that after reading a literary work, people um, are more prone to feel empathy for someone else because that 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 sort of empathy muscle has just been practiced um and so that's just one of the ways that we can see that effect of literature on us 
you know, experiencing through literature, the tension of one's life that we so often see and read in good works of literature, that tension of, oh, I want to do the right thing, but I might not do the right thing. <laughs> and we so resonate with that. Yes. It does. It just evokes something different inside of us. Um, then really, I feel like anything else can, because when it's happening in our own life, it's happening so fast, it's hard to even realize what's going on. Right. Yeah, so, so interesting. Well, as Christians, we do hold scripture in the highest regard. In your book on reading well, you talk about how reading literature really can help us to understand scripture and read it better. Mm -hmm. How would you say that's true? Yeah, it's true because if we step back, and again, as I said before, literature is, an, is a form of art that uses words in the same way that a painter uses painting or a sculptor uses marble or wood. People who write literary works use words. And of course, the Bible uses words. It's, it's much more than a literary work, but it is a beautiful work of language. And so the more the more skilled we become in the in reading words and understanding words and just even appreciating words the better we can understand the bible so for example it, some of us will go into a museum and if we know nothing about art you know we'll we'll see a, a work by um we'll see a masterpiece that's realistic and we can, we can recognize that it took a lot of skill to do that and, and we can appreciate that. But then we might go see a, a work of modern art and think, hmm, what is there to appreciate about this, right? But there, the fact is that if we know something about the way canvas and paint and light work, we actually can appreciate more, not just that classic work of art that's, you know, meets us where we are, but we can also appreciate those more abstract works and, and what's being said and how that's been done. Um, again, a long drawn out example to point out that simply, you know, we are people of the word and God re chose for whatever reasons to re I have a few ideas, but he chose to reveal himself to us through words, small w, and also through the word, his son, who is called the word. And so there's something about our very nature that uh, understands God through language, through the word. And so again, reading a great work of reading Charles Dickens isn't the same as reading the Bible, but reading Charles Dickens can help us to better understand those words in the Bible when we're, we have practiced those skills of sort of understanding the layeredness of language, the implications of language, and just the way that language communicates to us. Mm. Yes, I, yeah, I love that because, you know, I didn't grow up an avid reader. Um, it's definitely something that now my friends would be like, oh, Amber, the reader, she probably has read that book. But that also means that I didn't have this really, I don't have the same foundation that some of my friends will perk up when they hear some of the things that you read when you were young, like even Charlotte's Web, like I didn't read that when I was young because I would rather be outside doing X, Y, and Z. So I know that that can be cultivated in us because I do love to read now. And so what are some things that you would tell an adult if they were sitting with you and said, I really want to become an avid reader. 
That's a great question. And I think a lot of people are intimidated by the idea of reading, you know, great works of literature uh, because it's, it's a habit that hasn't been cultivated. But it is a habit that can be cultivated. That's the good news. And so what I would encourage people is to, first of all, realize that this kind of reading, reading literature is a different kind of reading. The biggest mistake I see people make, and especially my students, is to try to read literary works too fast. Again, to use the museum example, you don't go to a museum to, to slide by and just glance at all the paintings to see, oh, I, I wanted to see what a bowl of fruit looks like, so I'm done now. Um, you go and you look at the paintings because you you want to see how the painter captured the light, used brush strokes or used the pencil, and you want to observe how the work is made, not just yeah. what is a picture of. So when we read literary works, we really need to slow down and pay attention to the way the words and the sentences are constructed, the way they communicate to us. Um, in the same way we would read a poem, like reading a poem, we would have to, most of us would have to read very slowly because poems are very condensed and mm-hmm. difficult. And, and so, so read slowly, pay attention to how something is communicated, not just what. Um, you can't, get the same experience from a work of literature in reading it that you can from just like looking up the Wikipedia summary and going, oh, that happened. Oh, he dies at the end. Oh, okay. No, that's not the point. (laughs) The point is to experience, you know, what happens along the way through the medium of language and pick up, you know, pick up a work that, that you're interested in and not going to be intimidated by. It doesn't have to be uh, war and peace, it could be, you know, a short story or it could be a collection of poems or it could be a modern novel. Um, there's so many great works of literature that, you know, if you're interested in it, you slow down, you give yourself time and, and, and understand it will be challenging and accept and embrace that challenge. You'll be so much better for it. Yeah, well, it's interesting, though, because you say you tell your students that, but now usually it's the professors that are telling us we have to have it done in a certain amount of time. <laughs> well, that's true, but we, you have to set aside a number of hours. I, I, just, right. emailed, I just emailed my class today, actually, uh, with some pointers, and I said, please know you need to set aside several hours mm-hmm. to do this reading. Sometimes we, I, I don't know, we just, we, we've developed the idea of speed reading and reading quickly so much in our culture that I think a lot of people, they think of um, taking a long time to read as a failure. Mm -hmm. Um, When actually over the years that I've been teaching, some of my best students, the the deepest, the ones who understand the most are the slowest readers. Mm. That's encouraging actually, because I used to get so caught up with reading that, I mean, if I didn't enjoy a book or whatever, I mean, I just would stop altogether. But I've definitely learned some tips along the way that it's okay. It's even okay to be reading more than one book at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes your brain kind of needs those breaks and those changes, and you can process more than one book right. at a time. And so it may catch you off guard a little bit, but if somebody like me were just like, what's a good book for a beginning, <laughs> you know, I want to read a work of literature that's not been written in the last, you know, 20, 30, 50 years. Well, my first recommendation, if you can wait a few months, is uh, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Okay. A lot of people who have maybe just heard of it and don't know that much about it 
mistakenly think it's just like a romance, a love story. Yeah. No, it's sort of that. It's got it's got love in it. Um, nothing wrong with that. But it's so much more. And I actually have an edition of Jane Eyre coming out next spring with B&H where I give an introduction with no spoilers to help readers know what they should look for as they're reading it. Then with discussion questions afterwards. And Jane Eyre is a great classic, but it's also one that is written in really the most everyday language that you might find in a classic. It's a first person account told by a servant girl. So her language isn't, she's thoughtful and deep, but she's not writing in like, you know, uh, you know, old English, English, old English. (laughs) Right. So that's, that's my first recommendation. Um, Another recommendation, you know, maybe for someone who's uh, more political and concerned with contemporary issues would be George Orwell's 1984 or Animal Farm. Now they're dark works, but they, you know, they, they grapple with issues that are, you know, still were, (laughs) are important today and they're, Mm -hmm. they're not long. Um, They're very dark. So I will say that I do like the dark works. Um, Or maybe one, let me see if I can think of one other, um, one other suggestion. A lot of Christians love Marilyn Robinson, Gilead. Uh, I personally, my favorite work of hers is Housekeeping, which is again, sort of a heartbreaking work. Um, And that one's more contemporary, more relatable, I think, to readers today. Well, now, in in addition to Jane Eyre, don't you have some other works of literature that you are going to be over the next couple of years? Well, tell us. Put out all the information for us. (laughs) I get excited. (laughs) Okay. The two volumes that are already out, so feel free to to pick these up, are Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility uh, and Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Very different, different books. But again, with both of these, I've written introductions that are geared toward those who've never read the books before. Uh, although those who've read the books before and love them have told me that they, those introductions have helped them as well. But they're designed to be read before you read the work, so you kind of know what you're getting in for. Uh, and then the discussion questions deal with the events that happen. So Sense and Sensibility, Heart of Darkness, and then next spring, along with Jane Eyre, will be my edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Okay. Yeah. A fun, interesting, weird book. Uh, Nothing like any of the movies. And then the next two, uh, the year after that, uh, will be Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Durbervilles and Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Oh, so yeah. you caught me with Sense and Sensibility because I have to say, I am one of those people that I have tried to read and I just cannot get into Jane Austen books. So maybe it will help me because even my mother-in-law, they're reading it for a book club right now. And she is like, I, I think you might be able to do it. You just got to press through. And I'm having a hard time pressing through. Yes. <laughs> and I would say, you know, Sense and Sensibility it was one of Austen's earliest novels. And I actually consider it to be one of her roughest in the sense that it is a, a little clunky. Like it's not as smooth and and as fine as her later works but and a lot of people don't know how to read it because they don't even know what she's doing in it and so my introduction helps with that so I think that you should read my edition with my introduction and I would love to hear how that changes the experience for you okay well if I really (laughs) if I commit I will make sure that I let you know well tell us okay so if I was sitting in one of your classes at southern or southeastern or at liberty as a Christian what are some of the things that you work through in class to just really help 
your students engage both culture and Christianity. Right, right. Um, wow, there are so many things. I mean, one of my favorite classes to teach is one that is on the English novel. And we discussed the English novel as kind of a literary genre that developed through the 18th and 19th centuries. And most of these early novels are about young women trying to preserve their chastity. Mm. And that sounds very, you know, very quaint and old fashioned, yet at the same time, very relevant today, right? And so it's really just so wonderful to work through some of those questions that students still grapple with today and see how these have been issues for a long time. And we can kind of look back and see how they were handled badly or correctly two and 300 years ago and talk about how they might be being handled badly or correctly today um and there's actually one of your classes (laughs) oh yeah so that so that is so fun I mean when when we read Tess of the Durbervilles without giving too much away and I'll be you know this will be in my series uh we spend a lot of time talking about date rape Mm, because that is like the central event of the story and it's a very ambiguous kind of event uh, that has been interpreted multiple ways over the years in the same way that we find many of our news stories centering on acts of sexual violation That's that right. people interpret different ways. This stuff is, has not changed. It's as old as, as Genesis. Well, and having known a couple of people who have been in your class, I know that, let's just say I don't know anyone who has said they have not walked away loving your work, your class, all of it. So, um, yeah, I know that's, I'm sure there's some out there, but I'm sure there are, but I don't know them and I only know a few, but that's okay. That's good. Well, so as we start to close out, I just want you, I mean, you've recommended a couple of books and, and maybe these will be the same ones, but because we're talking so much about, you know, how literature can help us with virtue, which is obviously things that, most of the time, I mean, that's godly character. Mm-hmm. Will you tell us a few of the books that you have read and the virtue of their character um, and kind of, you know, how that points us towards more Christ-like character? So, um, yeah, of course, in on reading well, I do cover another of one of, of Jane Austen's novels, Persuasion, and I focus on the virtue of patience which is for me, as I mentioned earlier, um, is a struggle is when I'm, you know, in a pandemic at the grocery store or whatever, or just anything. (laughs) So I think that novel and that virtue are ones that we all probably need to cultivate more. And since we're talking about Jane Austen, I'll just mention, I, you know, I don't include this in the book, but my favorite work of hers is Pride and Prejudice. Um, Mm. It's most people's. And, and of course the title itself tells us what she's, you know, what she's, grappling with and dealing with there it's pride and prejudice and she's writing about characters who need to overcome their pride and their prejudice so that's a great work to that does that and also in on reading well another virtue which is very different uh, that I cover is the virtue of justice and justice is the virtue that is complicated because we can be just or unjust as individuals, uh-huh. but also justice deals with our community, you know, our world. And so we, so justice is, is unlike all the, all the other virtues have to do with just like our own personal Person. piety, right? But justice also describes the world we live in. And of course, you know, we're all thinking about justice these days, whether, whether we're, we think we're just or we're not just, or we're, you know, we think people are blowing it out of proportion or they're not. 
um, we really need to think about it. And, and the novel I use for that chapter, um, Dickens' uh, A Tale of Two Cities, oh, yes. is just presents so many parallels to our own world um, because the temptation whenever we are facing injustice is to overcorrect it. And virtue is always the moderation between an excess and a deficiency. But mm-hmm. our human tendency always, just as hu- human beings, whenever we see a wrong or feel an injustice, when we want to correct it, the tendency to, is to overcorrect. And that's mm-hmm. what we need to resist if we want to be virtuous, is to go back to that sort of middle where we are neither too much uh, nor too little of any quality. You may have just mo- motivated me to go get that one off of my shelf downstairs because you're right. I mean, in a political season, in racial tensions, I mean, reading about justice right now and wrestling through that or just even mm-hmm. reading something that gives words, like you said, sometimes I think we can't find words about right. how we're feeling. And that is something I do love about reading. Sometimes it can help us sort out um, our feelings. So, well, Karen, where can people connect with you? You have all of your books and, and so share your website and sure. she's on Twitter, but now Twitter is, I always refer to it's, it's the spicy social media. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's very spicy. Yes. I do spend uh, t- too much of my time on Twitter. Uh, you can find me there at KS prior, but if you just want to learn more about my books and, um, and some of my works, you can go to my website, which is Karen Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Oh, I really appreciate you. it. This was a lovely conversation. Don't you want to just grab all of Karen's books and begin reading now? Well, before you do, I want to remind you to take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on your listening app if you enjoy Grace Enough Podcasts. Those reviews not only help the podcast be discovered by others, but they are an encouragement to me. Friends, have a great week, and I'll meet you back here next Tuesday for episode 87 with Mike Savage from Prison to Praise. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.